Joe? Born ready. Ready? Hello, and welcome back to the 80 Proof Podcast. After another one of what's now becoming our traditional sabbaticals, because, well, we treasure money and overtime in real life just a little too much. Uh, but welcome back, everybody. Uh, this week's whiskey is the Ardbeg. What is it? The Weed Beastie. The Weed Beastie. It's a, this is a, what is it, a five-year single malt scotch whiskey. In commemoration of the Scotch tariffs being uh, shot down out of the sky by better reasoning, I watched most of my favorite scotches drop by uh, 20 to 25% in price, so it looks like scotch is back on the menu. <laughs> back on the menu, boys! <laughs> and then I myself picked up some, uh, how do you pronounce it, Lagavulin? Lagavulin. Lagavulin for my shelf just to have. Maybe we'll do a review of that in the future. But uh, yeah, I'm excited for the drop in whiskey prices. I'm excited to be back on the, uh, what is that? I guess this is the airwaves, the interwebs. The internet needs us. The aeronet. <laughs> Well, Artbeg just recently dropped this. We BC. It's five years old. It's a little young for a scotch. This is uh, apparently, from what I've learned, this is fairly um, controversial. What they're promising is a uh, on unfiltered, rich and explosive experience. Smoky, uh, pine tar, resin, the the whole nine yards you're getting with a lot of that peat smoke. <clears throat> and when you drink it neat. You do get some of those. I mean, you had you you had yourself put in what you said you caught a little bit of fruits, the sweet sweet fruit or a little like bit a of vanilla. Sweetness. It was more like a vanilla. Um, I think when you were reading the tasting notes, you said cherry. I I, mm -hmm. I really was more of like a vanilla -y, uh, tinge to it. Um, I got definitely got the pine tar you were suggesting. It's got a. Uh, a strong like that that strong Ardberg smell. It's yeah. the only description I can have for because like other scotches don't smell that way to me. Right. Like I could tell an you could you smell this. It's an it's an Ardberg. Like yeah. I I just know what it is. Um, delicious. Uh, straight. I actually I was telling you a moment ago I, I enjoyed it much more straight. Get a lot more flavor complexity out of it. Like you said, the sweets, a little bit of the pine tar. You know the the traditional Ardberg smokiness, although it's toned down a lot in this one. Um. A little bit of that sharper, like ethanol small, but that comes with the higher proof that this is. It's a uh, 47.4% alcohol. So it's usually our bags are, pr are proof down to 40 straight, like most other scotches. They let this one, let it ride a little bit. Yeah, with a, with an ice cube, uh, that little bit of ice, the sweetness completely went away. You just got a mouthful of pine needles. Um, <laughs> and it got very... Um, Syrupy is the word I used. Like the texture almost changed. I actually didn't really enjoy it with uh, with one ice cube. So this is going to be a, a straight for me for the rest of the night. But uh, it still is good. I, I definitely did not enjoy it. it just is just the the flavoring was superior straight to to with a little bit of an ice cube. Yeah, this is where it, it comes in some some odd um, yes things that normally don't happen with with whiskeys that we drink is happening here. So this is a non-chill filtered. It's a single malt. Um, five years. It's aged in ex-bourbon barrels and Oloroso sherry casks. And I'm assuming they do like 50-50 and then they combine it in a vat and then bottle it. <clears throat> so you're going to get some of that, I guess, that leftover residual sweetness you'd find probably probably from the scotch barrel proofing. And the sherry casks are going to add like a, a fruity flavor. You would think if it's younger than the other Ardbeg we had, we had the 10 on this show before, 
you would think at five years it would just be like bursting with smokiness because usually your your very aggressive flavors tend to tone down a little bit with age. And Arberg's already like an aggressive. Yeah, it's already aggressive. To even other scotches. Yeah, it's just this one didn't really. It, it's there, and it's part of what I like about it. It's almost like it's almost like having a, a whiskey and a cigar in one in one handy package here. But when like you said when you throw an ice cube in here, usually when you put you're putting ice in a, in a whiskey. <clears throat> you're trying to tone down some more of the the uh, like aggressive aspects of it so you, the little the smaller things in the background can come out can pop and you can taste them and this in this iteration here you put an ice cube in here and all the small stuff in the background dies right away yeah, it was really bizarre maybe that's why it's getting some of the controversial looks that it that it's getting is because a lot of people, most tasters even that I've that I've spoken to or that I've seen online, or but they they don't really do the, the straight tasting as much. Like mm-hmm. they they really concentrate on like that dra- dip of water. It's a traditionalist thing. They, that's mm-hmm. the way it's supposed to be drank raw, you know. But you know, whiskeys in general, we talked about it a hundred times, and um, scotches and everybody in that family is they we're in the golden age of that right now. So some of them are designed to be drank straight. Some of them just end up being that way. And uh, this is one I, I actually like a little better. I do appreciate that Arberg tried to get out of their wheelhouse on this one. Yeah, this is, they definitely swung the fences. Um, anything usually, especially in the Scotch world, anything below 10 years is almost kind of like, is is the four-year bourbon and wave. It's just people don't pay any respect to it. So they must have done some tasting and was like, you know what? This is something that I think tastes good enough. They swung for the fences with it. Not everyone's going to like it, but that's, you know. This, this tastes like, and this is this is a story you'll see over and over and over again with uh, with distillers. We, they talked about this at Jack Daniels with some of their Tennessee Tasters editions and things like that. Is This definitely came from some barrels that were in a corner of their warehouse and a winter storm blew through and cracked the wall open and it got a, just a little bit different of an aging than they normally get. And then mm-hmm. they said, hey, let's throw this in with the sherry cask ones that we have. And, may, you know, this came out really good. And it was just like they had their Arberg. It didn't fit within their profile for what their normal um, product offerings are. And they said, what can we do with it? And one of their master tasters over there was like, well, we can age something else and some sherry casks real quick, blend them together, get a younger a younger whiskey and we'll make, or a younger scotch, and we'll, uh, we'll come out with something unique. And it actually turned out to be a very serviceable product. And I, I'm glad that... A place like this where I don't, a distillery like this where I don't typically from them see anything vastly different mm-hmm. than their traditional product offerings, did something that not only that I, I somewhat enjoy, uh, is almost you wouldn't, if you didn't recognize that smokiness and like I said, that smell that you could nail 100 out of 100 times on scotches, yeah. that nose, um, you would never know this was an Aardberg. Yeah, I think, especially again for, for scotches and you have like Space Eyes and Islay scotches, when people pay a premium for 10, 15, 20 year, um, your 10 year, 10, 15, 20 year blends, like it doesn't leave you a lot of wiggle room to give you outside of that. And when you're making a 20 year investment on some of these barrels, you don't, you can't, you can't take half of it at year 12 and then go say, all right, let's see what's going on with it. So doing something like this, I think is good. And I hope this encourages more scotch producers who usually don't go outside the warehouse at all for stuff like this to, uh, to take it on. Um, that it's, I think the, the issue is, is that for the five year, you're not getting a vastly different taste than what you would normally get. It is still, it has some difference to it, but most people, especially on this side of the pond, um, Americans who are going to drink, uh, scotches and with all their whiskeys basically with some ice in here if i just put ice in here and you never got to taste this neat and gave it to you you would think i just gave you uh probably didn't like it yeah, very much pine yeah. needle soup 
um, with with a little bit of smokiness in there because that's what really gets accentuated. Yeah, it gets really accentuated. On, on the other side of that, I think you're going to see, especially like we were talking about the drop in tariffs, and now they can offer these things at a um, at a much more palatable price point to the American consumer. And I, I find that the American consumer, when it comes to their alcohols, are much more willing to reach out of their their own wheelhouses, just like our our bag is done here. Um, so that gives guys like this, distillers like this, an opportunity to do some experimental offerings and things like that because they have an entire customer base now that they couldn't reach before. And like, obviously, they could reach us. You could buy our big here. It wasn't like illegal, but fifteen twenty dollars off the price tag. Yeah, you know, for them, the profit margin is the same as the government does not really stealing the money from them. So they're going to make the same money while selling more of the volume because they've opened it up to a um, a less quote unquote wealthy. Uh, you know, consumer base. So, and yeah. you'd be surprised the difference um, when you're selling product, $15, $10 can make in who's buying your product. Like your sales will go up just from that. And to me, like that's going to give not just Ardbeg, but everybody over, all the Scotch companies overseas a, a chance to really try some of these experimental things, do some of the wild shit that like Jack Daniels has been doing for years or Jameson's, even Jameson's been doing and so on and so forth, where they're offering these very unique flavors and these different barrel aged whatever, because they know they'll be able to sell it to somebody because yeah. they don't have to worry about that massive taff tariff. Yeah. That's that going on. I mean, this, I noticed the price change was about $14 for a pre and pre and post tariff wave. And for a scotch, it's already about $40, $45. Once you bump it in at $60 to close to $70 range, I already have stuff I normally drink, and I'm not going to – usually wouldn't take a flyer on a $70 bottle. And, and we also talk – we talk a lot about price point on the show. I think, I think that, honestly, when it comes to our reviews, that's one of the most important factors, more so even the necessary flavor, taste, quality, our own personal preferences. If you're good and enjoyable at a point that I – and willing to pay the price and I think it's a bargain that's what I'm going to buy mm-hmm. and this tariff has really been holding the scotch world like the scotch offerings back when it comes to the American market because again I'm less likely to take a flyer on a unique scotch when I'm not really a huge scotch fan to begin with when I can go get something I really enjoy like an Eagle Rare for half the price and get the $70 quality out of it for $40 yeah. as opposed to getting you know $40 quality from a $70 bottle you know it's that really matters to me when I'm shopping at the liquor store. Yeah, obviously now I'm doing well. I'm an adult. I tend to spend a little bit more on my whiskeys. But I remember, you know, eight years ago when I wasn't doing so well, still a whiskey fan, somebody who wanted to really branch out. This might have been out of my price range two weeks ago. Now I can give it a shot. Definitely. So I, I don't I understand the controversy with uh, with the pricing because it's. The cost isn't that far off or wasn't that far off from what the tenure was and some of their other selections were. So I can understand people not wanting to roll with it. But the other stuff, uh, people going outside the wheelhouse for the traditionalists, they'll be upset by it. That's, you know, whatever. That's their thing. I I don't have a problem with someone pulling out, say, something that might need a little bit of work. Uh, putting it in, in bottles and letting people try it. Uh, what do you, what do you think? If you had to give this on the eighty proof podcast uh, best out of five scoring ranking system, where are you going to throw this? one? I'm really starting to think like we need to increase the numbers in our scoring system because we, we use a lot of points a lot. Uh, like I said, I'm not a huge Scotch fan to begin with. I, I would 
I feel like I'd be stretching it to give this a four just because I really am appreciative of what they've done with mm-hmm. it. Also because I'm on a little bit of the tariffs are gone high and we both know that we hate government anything. Yeah. So, you know, the best way to rebel against that is to buy things that they drop the tariffs off because like any other capitalist mechanism, when they realize sales will go up and they'll make money off the sales tax, they don't want to put the tariffs back on. So now I'm like even more excited to buy this. So I'm trying to temper that and I'm going to give it like a three eight. I think on the three eight's a pretty solid one. I want to, I want to, not that my praise means nothing, but you get a gold star from the 80 Proof Podcast or at least one half of us um, for trying to do something different that you haven't done in all the time that I've been tasting your offerings, Ardbeg. I really appreciate you guys doing this, and I enjoyed it. This one might have a place on my shelf for a little while, at least to give it another shot. Um, yeah, 3.8. I'm going with that. Uh, yeah, that's actually where I was, I was going to put it. I had it like right about a 3.7. Okay. Just because... We have talked about that price point before, and for forty-five dollars, it is an interesting, unique scotch compared to what you're you're normally going to get from most distilleries. But for forty-five dollars, I mean, there's other ones. There's there's another there's another Arbeg, um, very dark. I can get for around fifty. Tomatin, uh, twelve years, like thirty-five dollars. Bulmer, twelve is like like thirty-eight bucks, and they're all really Johnny Black. If I want to hate myself, right? There's they're all really good scotches. So just priced a little high for what i think it should be uh but i think if they're taking a flyer on this and they i know this isn't a a massive release this is i think they did two relatively large size of these uh, world distributions and i think that's it for the time being i think this was a let's get a bottle out there yeah yeah, and see see how people like it and that's a good it's good that's fine you don't always have to continue to do something uh if it's you put out a one-off one-offs are fine. It allows you to to stretch your creative legs. Plus, one-offs are great for collectors. So, there's, there's people who are going to pick up two bottles and store Spoiler, one. Spoiler: We won't be collecting this. We're drinking it. I'm I'm in the process of drinking it now. I have a uh, I have a coworker who's turned me on to the idea of um not saving things. Just open it up the day you get it. Have a glass of it because it's not like it goes bad. You just sit it on your shelf and then you can enjoy it with everybody. You can hold on to it for a thousand years, but if you're not looking to make money on it, why are you holding it? And this would be one of those, like, why would I hold this when I can try something brand new from Arbeg that they may never do again as opposed to keep it on my shelf? And sure, it might be worth $100 six years from now, but yeah, is that really worth it or is the time drinking it worth it? And right now, at least straight without that ice, I'm going to go ahead and give it a uh, absolutely worth a 3.8. Yeah, so 3.7, the taste is there, again, straight. You drink this neat, and it has a lot of complexity to it. There's tastes that come in, and they it like dives in and out of that really heavy peatiness and smokiness you get. Throw some ice in there. Unfortunately, those nuances go right away, and you're drinking a thick uh, pine tar uh, tea that filtered through. Yeah, it's basically, if you put an ice cube in it, you're putting the tariff back on yeah. it, and that just ruins it. But this is, again, this might be one of those um, you just have to drink it accordingly. You might, you might drop you know, to put two milliliters of water in here or something to, to even out the uh, penis a little bit, but I would stay away from uh, from putting ice in here. Beyond that, yeah, three point seven, I think is very fair. Yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be smoking a cigar with this later tonight. topic at hand this week we, uh, we kind of held it for after the review i guess this time usually we give you it earlier uh we're gonna be uh covering um 
A little bit of our, our politics stuff, just because I wanted to make a comment on the uh, the extension of the National Guard uh, covering the Capitol. Just so we're clear, I will not be, or I don't know about you, but I will not be offering any opinions on what happened on January 6th of 2021. That's not the purpose of this podcast. And if you're looking for that opinion, just just turn it off, because I'm not going there. But what we are going to do is look into a lens. I, I posed a historical question to you, Joe, a couple weeks ago, and it seems like you took some inspiration for it for this particular podcast and that that is with the with the troops being placed in the capital and the big old fence and it has to be there to to ensure our free and fair elections and to be there for the people and we're going to put military troops in the capital i said you can sit there and you can look at this lens and you can go wow that actually makes a lot of sense we're like having a military quote-unquote occupation or a military force stationed in our capital which is unprecedented in our uh other than the civil war obviously like really unprecedented in our um our uh, country in modern times, it's easy to look back at, through the lens of history at other events like this, and I specifically brought up the Praetorian Guard and uh, Augustus Caesar, and how when he came over the hill with his three battalions of, you know, Praetorian Guards, I, that's an oversimplification, but, um, yeah, you know, and parked them in the, the capital of Rome and became the first true emperor. Um, fun fact, Julius Caesar was not technically was not. the first true emperor of Rome. Um, I'm sure all the, all the people loved him and they, they understood and believed all his reasons for requiring three legions, essentially. I think they were called cohorts, but three cohorts of Praetorian guards uh, to be now stationed in Rome, which had never been done before. Uh, military being stationed in Rome was unheard of. It was, it was illegal. It's actually called, like, yeah, the, it was like the sacred square yeah, there, was a, there was a sacred boundary line yeah, around Rome. a sacred Rome. boundary line. So he violated this huge taboo, very similarly, and all the reasons sounded really good. And then you fast forward a couple centuries and 30-something emperors later, and it, it doesn't sound so good. So I, I'm looking at it now, and like, yeah, all the reasons are innocent, and I'm not accusing the Democrats of somehow occupying the Capitol. Again, we're not going that direction. So if you're listening for that one, we're not doing that today. Um, I'm going to assume that they're taking it at face value. They genuinely were concerned for their lives, and they felt this was necessary for a peaceful transition of power, which I'm sure is what Augustus thought he was like, we're transitioning over the Senate's giving me their blessing um, to really kind of take over. And uh, I, I just need it for a peaceful transition of power. That's all I need. I, I just need them there to, to supplement what really wasn't a police force at the time and, and really maintain Rome's glory. Well, now they're, while they're here, you know, yeah, while they're here, you know, and you can see how easily even the purest of intentions were assuming um, both for Augustus and currently that, uh, the purest of intentions can always go bad, the road to hell, as they say. So I, I posed this question to you that looking through the lines of history, like I had always, and again, digging into the topic itself kind of opened my eyes, um, which happens to us a lot on, on this particular show, to how much more complicated my initial understanding of that particular part of Roman history was. Because I'd always, again, when Augustus Walsh walked over the hill with three legions of Praetorian guards, it's like, well, that's that's not exactly how it went down. That's not exactly what happened. But I sit there and I think and I look at how complicated it was. And it's interesting to look at today's events through the lens of history and say, well, this is another military force that wasn't designed necessarily for frontline combat. It's for National Guard and defense. Um, and they come and they occupy it for the good of everybody. Like they're there and stationed for the good of everybody. And then they just never fucking leave. 
And then recently, this most recent two weeks, they extended it again for <clears throat> varying what seems on the surface like really good reasons. And I'm not even saying that they're bad reasons. I'm just saying it's easy to go back in history and now look and see how this eventually turns into an abused thing. And we're at the very beginning, and I wonder if the um, citizens of Rome would have been as willing to accept the Praetorian Guard as their uh, governmental protectors had they seen what was going to happen within the next 100 yeah. to 200 years. They had a, the, the magic crystal you know, eight ball to tell them the future. Yeah, and again, I just, I'm prefacing this. I'm not, we're not knocking the decision to keep them or extend them, but much like Corona was two weeks to flatten the curves 12 months ago, they can keep extending this and extending this. And while I don't expect that, if they did fast forward 100, 200 years from now when we have a special national guardian police force in the capital of America with a giant fence around it, what would we be thinking then? So, what... Well, you were right. Caesar wasn't the... Uh, he was the first one... Well, actually, he wasn't even the first one to march his army on on um, Rome as a capital. But uh, Augustus is actually... Was actually Caesar's um, great-nephew. So it runs in the family. Well, isn't he... So, again, this is... If you guys want a really good breakdown of... Um, Roman history, you gotta you gotta find another source because we're not gonna do that. We're again yeah. oversimplification of events and some of uh, just kind of our insights from reading about this for about a week, uh, literally a week. So we're not the experts. We're just looking right. at this from the lens of uh, our own knowledge. And I'll give you um, a place to go to if you want to find it. But prior now, prior to prior to the guard actually coming to Rome, every general who was who was authorized to command troops was actually given a small guard and they specifically specifically put a cap on the sides there was enough to defend the general in emergency but not enough to wage a war this was for an ex for a reason i think the, the physical hard limit was 500 troops was the maximum guard you could have I.e., if we gave mattis his own three legions and he just turned around and went fuck you yeah i'm gonna take i'm yeah. taking over the place there's a reason we don't do that so as the republic Closer to closer to when it goes away, generals gain more and more power because they spend more time campaigning. Their troops come loaded to them. Uh, there's a guy called Mike Duncan. He has a really good podcast, um, The History of Rome. He also has a book called The Storm Before the Storm, which talks about this entire thing. Great reading on w what happens. Eventually, there's a little civil war. Augustus comes over with his own people and decides, I'm going to break this rule just once. We have the sacred rule of not garrisoning my troops inside the sacred boundary of Rome. But this one specific time, just this one time, I'm going to put them here. Small garrison, by the way. Not that much, like 3,500 troops. Like I said, three, quote-unquote, cohorts, which were the equivalent of a Roman legion, which today we'll call it a battalion. You know? But he had a, little, he had a little trick up his sleeve. Usually you get a guard, you get a guard assignment. He took like 3,500 of like his crack soldiers, guys who had been campaigning for 8, 10, 12 years, who were really good at this whole war fighting thing. Not the one weekend a month, two weeks a year yeah, National Guard that we have. No offense, NGs. I'm not, uh, I'm not criticizing you, but you're not the Green Berets. So he was able to cherry-pick the people he wanted to. He put them in there, and history, you know, it happened. Push comes to shove. He... Wins the little civil war that goes on there with his really good soldiers. Um, yeah, he defeats, uh, just for some context, so you know where to look when you're Wikipediaing this later. Um, it was this, you're looking for the second triumphant. Uh, there's a lot of history that comes before this. It's basically a group of three people that act as the president or emperor together. They share their power. They can cancel each other's orders out, so on and so forth. And then they all decide uh, they don't like that arrangement anymore. Um, one of them dies... Uh, I guess from poisoning or whatever it is by 
very sus circumstances, super sus. They uh, they kick him off the ship. Um, and then Octavian, later Agu- uh, Emperor Augustus. Um, this is where you're going to get really confused with Roman history because this killed me. Is like these people have 17 fucking yeah, names, they change names and too. they change every three years. Uh, Octavian and Mark Anthony, we all heard this name, um, fight it out at the Battle of Actium. And Octavian comes out on top. He takes Mark Anthony's Praetorian Guard and his Praetorian Guard. Merges them together. Merges them together, you know, bolstering his forces. Uh, and then he returns to Rome triumphant and brings his Praetorian Guard with him. Uh, he purposely only keeps five cohorts. Two, he sends off around the world to do his bidding. And three, he keeps to protect himself and carry out his bidding within the, uh, within the confines of Rome, this sacred circle. Um, this was not unpopular. Uh, just for a little context, the reason that the uh, second triumphant here became popular was much similar to the first triumphant was that people were fed the fuck up with the Senate and the current politics and what they were getting. And the um, plebeians rise up and say, well, this is bullshit. We don't like any of this anymore. We really like this general. And he answers the call. Again, oversimplification of events. Um, he's he's also very popular because he's the adopted son or nephew or whatever of Julius Caesar, who was kind of the first person that consolidated power before the first triumvirate and so on and so forth. Yeah, after he got stabbed is when the first triumvirate came to be. It's very interesting, this whole, the whole politics and how they're all related and how they're all banging each other and how it's like, uh, really weird. But anyway, Zeus was popular. He was, he was, they looked at him as like he was going to be another one of these saviors that was going to come in and do great things for the empire. And in his defense, he kind of did. When you read through it, he comes in, he has the Praetorian Guard, and he kind of feigns the I don't want power. He, While he's behind the scenes accumulating more power, he keeps giving up little powers that don't really matter. Um, but he does, he's giving away money, he's doing all sorts of things that really like makes him popular among the lower class. I don't know if this is all starting to sound a little familiar. Uh, um, populist candidates is what they refer to them these as these yeah. days and by the way during yeah like you're saying he doesn't he's saying he doesn't want all this power i don't want dictatorships were actually fairly common in rome when they had emergencies they handed absolute power to somebody who would come solve the problem then give that power back yeah, but it's usually for like a year yeah would do like all right we're senate ruled okay fuck someone's invading us we can't have the argument about who's doing what almost like a martial law or declaring emergency powers sound familiar um they give it to him for like a year or so and then he gives it back that's the idea. Or they vote to give him more emergency powers or whatever it is. The, the Senate penultimately had control. Yes. Yeah, so this Praetorian Guard also operated as a um, an intelligence service for, for Augustus and also as a, a secret police force. So if he needed somebody influential, say a business leader, say somebody who was up and coming, maybe going to the Senate and that person needed to get stabbed, these people would take care of it for him. So this is kind of like where we're, we're looking at the... Um the parallels here. And again, I'm not saying we're there yet. I'm not saying go, oh my God, this is fucking terrible. Um, one of the reasons that we're keeping the National Guard in, in Washington, D.C. right now is, is to supplement the Capitol Police because they're worried about civil unrest or whatever it is, which is imbuing them with some level of police powers. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think some of them have even been deputized just to help on Capitol grounds. That I don't know. Uh, I, only, I only know this because... Um, other law enforcement sources have told me that other law enforcement departments got shipped in for the inauguration and they all got deputized and that included some of the National Guard troops. Not all of them, some of them, so they have certain powers, police powers that they maybe normally wouldn't have. Um, 
we know from earlier podcasts and tons of shows and things that I watch, and you know my opinion on I don't like any, I don't like the military and police forces to be involved with each other virtually at all, except for search and rescue operations. So this makes me particularly uncomfortable. But here we have another historical example where we start doing this, and the idea was to supplement Rome, the capital's police force, because really before the Praetorian Guard, they had no real police force. Um, they had a mishmash of social services, sound mm-hmm. familiar, um, that kind of handled civil care and civil unrest. Um, again, it's very complicated. This is an oversimplification, but um, the Praetorian Guard came in and kind of took all that fucking shit over. We're, we're doing it now. Um, something that started as a military force and answered directly to the commander-in-chief of the entire empire uh, now is kind of in charge of this. Right, and remember that those individuals who came in and formed that first Praetorian Guard were hand-picked members of Augustus's team. Oh, and, and by the way, once he hand-picked them, he also gave them significant raises. Yes, and significant I was about privileges. to get to that. Um, their pay was higher, usually about five times higher than your standard legionary. Their length of service was shorter, so they can take their money and go fuck off and do something with it. And that's an early retirement, not a length of service. Like, you're released from your service, go back yeah. to your farm like you saw in the movie Gladiator. It's literally like, oh, here's your nice retirement severance package after 12 years instead of 15 to 18. And they were routinely given bonuses. And actually, the, the Latin term is donativium. Uh, basically, uh, anytime the empire fell into some riches by, you know, maybe invading the Gauls or they 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 poked the Macedonians with some spears or whatever, a little piece of the the Praetorian Guard would show up and ask just for like a small piece, kind of like if with like the mob running the ports, and they just want a little piece of the action. And uh, it actually became standard practice later on down the line for every new emperor coming in to uh, bestow onto his Praetorian Guard. Uh, a dowry, a payment, basically a don't stab me in the face payment. But um, unfortunately, all good things come to an end. And um, the guy who sets this this Praetorian guard up and uh, configures them in the way he wants them and has a good um, a good grasp on them and some control over them, well, he dies. And then they're kind of left as an institution on their own. Yeah, like are they, a lot of his power over the Praetorian Guard was because of the loyalty that imbued with him because he helped them, he defeated Mark Anthony and then he brings them in and like they're vet, war veterans picked by him and then the new legionnaires that they, or the new Praetorians that they bring in are are like loyal to him because the guys training them say to be loyal to him and then he fucking dies and this next guy who comes up, uh, Tiberius, right? Yeah. So Tiberius comes and he's like the adopted son of somebody. It's again fucking complicated, and they have no they have no real loyalty to him at all. But they do have all this power and authority. Yeah. And uh, Tiberius is going to meet the his end the same way a whole bunch of Roman emperors meet their end with, uh, and that's violently and prematurely. But the the one of the parts that uh, that was bugging me when you were first. Like broached this question to me. I see that um, Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, is is basically overriding people below him and say you should pull the troops back. Fine, you want to keep it safe. There were media articles and there were some news clippings um, that they were kind of like combing through certain National Guardsmen to see which people had which beliefs. And if they didn't kind of fit into a certain mold, then they were kind of like reassigning them to the outer rings or just loyalty checks? Just booting them out. I've never seen this in a... In a- Bad situation before ever. No, every president does purity checks. Yeah, I, I agree. I guess we're not, we're not paying blame on right. the side of the aisle. Either. I'm looking at it. 
from an objective lens of we now have a military force occupying, like not occupying, I keep using that word, this, a military force reinforcing our capital, which has not been, is which is unprecedented in modern times, and I'm trying to look at it through the lens of a historical example that we have. So now here's a good e historical example. The defense secretary is in here now with the president who maybe not is the healthiest person on the planet. Um, well, I don't know because I can't ask him a question. They keep shutting the stream right. off. And um, even if the, you had a situation, and this, this, I don't think this is the case, but people like really like this president, and then he goes away, and now you have vice president, and now you're going to have people in a position of... Wait, 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 so if you took a president and a vice president and the Speaker of the House, and there's three of them, and they've consolidated power... Um, that would be a triumphant, right? Kind of. And then, like, a little different in Rome. And but, then, like, yeah. one of them dies or disappears because of health reasons. And then, what happens if the other two start the fight? And then we already have a military force in the capital. Kind of weird. It's, it's I mean, again, it's just parallels. I'm not saying this is what's going on. I don't really think Nancy Pelosi is going to suddenly start sending out the National Guard to blackbag people from their houses. I'm just saying it's an interesting thing to look at. You, uh, you did. So Tiberius shows up, and uh, he, his major problem was now you have this group, this institution, and they've almost become another branch of the government. And his bright idea is, well, you know, they're not my people, so I'm going to clamp down on them and instill some discipline and authority over these people, which uh, didn't go well. He got stabbed leaving the Senate. Yeah, but what I really like about this is, like, with Tiberius especially, he, like, lived on a random fucking island. He didn't even live in Rome. And, like, he clamped down on them for discipline reasons, because he wanted them to kind of run his empire, so he didn't have to. He could just, like, fuck off on this yes. island. And they actually filled in the... Apparently, according to historical records, they filled the void fairly well. Uh, I, I think... I can't remember... It, it got to the point where, like, the, the head of the Praetorian Guard, like, I, I forget his name off the top of my head, but he, uh, he basically started getting to the point where he was calling himself, like, the actual emperor. He's like, well, I'm really the emperor. Like, he got too big for his boots. Like, he just turned around and was like, I'm real emperor. And then, like, Tiberius is like, all right, we'll kill that guy. <laughs> and now, okay, I'm the real emperor. Next guy up. Go back to running my empire for me. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what that name is. Um, they had a name for that. Again, we're, we're not history people. This was a, a very soft one-week reading of this because of a hypothetical question I posed to Joseph here. Um, if you really want the lowdown on this, it's a very complicated thing. Of, if there's one thing I learned from the research for this episode is that I knew way less about Roman history and politics than I thought I did. Mm -hmm. But it's very complicated, very good, and like blows Game of Thrones out of the water just reading it as, as dry as it can get sometimes. Sometimes you can't make a better hit. You can't make a better story about history than history itself. Yeah. So they do. Ha they do have that leader. I can't remember hit the name off the top of my head. What they called them? Uh, uh, something. I did a lot of reading. and I'm drinking whiskey. Yeah. If you email me <laughs> with the name, uh, I'll send you a ten dollar gift card because we're not sponsored, and that's the best you're gonna get. <laughs> but uh, that that person who was essentially the the bridge, he was um, assigned from the Emperor to kind of be the leader of the Praetorian Guard. And actually, there were different points in history where the Emperor had that guy killed and the Praetorian Guard also uh, just didn't like that guy and killed him on their own. So we're going to get that. We're going to get that yeah. to... Uh, so then with the but next the, Emperor, uh, when we're done with Tiberius... I... He was essentially, for a period of time, he basically filled in. If you want to think of in Game of Thrones term, that guy's the hand of the king. And while the king is... Well, Robert Baratheon is off uh, killing stuff and whoring around... Uh, Tywin Lannister's in charge of the entire 
Roman Empire and doing a, a fairly decent job. Now, there, it is a problem because you have a group of soldiers who are technically aren't, are, they answer to nobody. So you do have some riffraff in there, and occasionally people get uh, murdered, abducted. Uh, rape. rape was a big thing Big in thing Rome. back in the day. Big thing in Rome. But uh, what I've seen so far is that Roman emperors really don't like having their authority questioned. And yeah, like, that guy could have just literally run the empire with all the power of the emperor, as long as he didn't say... I'm basically the emperor now. Like, if he didn't look around and go, I am the captain now, he would have been fine. But Tiberius didn't do that. He got mad that he wasn't uh, the beloved emperor of Rome and then went around and said, I am the beloved emperor of Rome and tried to basically institute Roman decimation on the Praetorian Guard, but they weren't going to turn on each other. So they decided the handy thing to do was just to kill the guy who wants to institute discipline. Ironically, with the help, uh, so this is there's a couple of different stories about this. Um, the one I like the most, and the one I like to ascribe to, is that Emperor Caliglia, which um, I learned from Time Suck with uh, Dan Cummings today. That uh, good podcast. Listen to that uh, if you're really looking for some good deep dives in the history. I'm just giving him a shout out because this is where I learned it from. His uh, Caliglia means little boots, so basically uh, he's Emperor My Childhood nickname, which I thought was hysterical. Um, he is the adopted son of another guy that was the heir to the throne that Tiberius kicked the fuck out and then murdered his wife and then adopted his son and uh, raised him thinking this was going to be a good idea. And I guess Caliglia um, held some, some long-standing grudge against that, against that and went ahead and uh, had the Praetorian Guard and him suffocate Tiberius in his sleep, which is the... Uh, the one of the more accepted versions of how Tiberius went down. I don't know if you have a different version. Well, no, that's actually the, also the base story for Gladiator. They based that entire yeah. story on. But no, you're actually you're right. Apparent uh, the 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 most ex- universally accepted story is that he was suffocated in his sleep. Caliglia, Whether it was by Caliglia, the Praetorians, or both, probably both. Historical debate. But. Caliglia, not realizing that he was setting his own doom after 14 years of rule that was uh, up in the air as perhaps not really not that good. Started out kind of strong. Really but then ended very, very popular. Bad. He was the descendant of some other popular general. I forget the name because this get all complicated because they're all cousins and brothers and stepbrothers and sisters and adopted sons and they're all fucking each other. And it gets really fucked up. Um, started out really strong and then he started getting super paranoid because he got sick off like some bad steak or something and assumed he was poisoned and then he started just fucking executing people left and right including leaders in the Praetorian Guard so they killed him in uh, 41 killed the fuck out of him uh, by the way uh, the next dude behind him Claudius uh, his wife conspires with the Praetorian Guard in 54 they poison him <laughs> strange <laughs> strange uh, her son takes the, f- the throne um, or son or or adopted something, nephew, somebody in the family. So you've ever seen a, a crazy straw? Yeah. Take about 10 of them, wrap them together. That's the Roman leadership family tree. <laughs> the next guy, Galba, is in charge for another 11 years. And then a guy named Otho, 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 goes and pitches the, the, the Praetorian Guard by, him, by himself, basically, before the, the, the Roman people even have anything to say about perhaps new emperor. Wins, gets their favor, and then kills that guy. <laughs> Becomes emperor. Um, dies very soon after that. By another plot, the guy who plotted to kill him is also murdered by Praetorian Garden 69. Uh, just, this is just a note to the uh, Democrat senators that may or may not stumble across this podcast and the, and the, um, the House of Representatives people that think having the... Uh, Having a permanent National Guard presence in the uh, Washington, D.C. is uh, 
is a good thing because it'll protect you. Uh, that's exactly what the Roman government did, and they got assassinated left and right. So not necessarily the best way to go about it. Yeah, and there's a lot There's a lot of names in here. I don't want to go over all of them because, number one, it'll be take me a while. Number two, I'm going to butcher all of them. But and also, a, this is not a history podcast. It's right. an important part in history, though. Where did I where did I put that? Oh, okay. So in 238, this is um this is getting close to the crisis of the third century where Roman um, Empire starts to fall apart. Uh, there's this guy Balbinus, and he has no, I'm sorry, uh, Maximus Thrax is his name. Awesome fucking name, by the way. After Gladiator, Maximus is always the best. Yeah. Maximus Thrax, and he has a very Tiberius way of doing things. As in, these aren't my my um guardsmen and uh i don't really like these guys so what he actually does is he comes in and he purges a whole bunch of these people actually has a bunch of them killed uh he what he does is he moves their encampment outside of the the sacred walls of the city that line of the city brings in the actual military so he has to have the military protect himself from the military that was brought in to defend the city as a military force. And I think this is a good time to pause um, and just mention that we keep mentioning how the Praetorians helped assassinate that emperor, take out that senator, wield the political power on, on a grand scale. Uh, if they were doing it to people with actual power, what the fuck do you think they were doing to the citizens? Yep. Average, average day people. Yeah. Once they realized how much power they had and how much they, they had to be quote-unquote taken care of so that they didn't, you know, assassinate you and you were protected from criminal prosecution. They were out raping, pillaging, murdering all the plebeians they could find. So it comes to a head. Uh, apparently Praetorian Guard doesn't like being purged and realigned. So they kill Maximus Thrax, uh, Papanius, and Balbinus, three emperors in 238 alone. And this sparks an open war between Roman citizens who arm themselves and the Praetorian Guard. So, oh, so what you're saying is that the general public having arms is good in case you get a tyrannical military group that somehow gains political wielding power. Yes. Okay. And they they launch into a war. <laughs> Just again, a note for Democratic senators and representatives before you keep extending these, this military force as a permanent presence. When they start assassinating all you, the only one that can save you is us. We might not want to either. So the Praetorian Guard, I mean, really, really swings to the fences here. And they kill three, 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 three emperor, fucking emperors in one year. And again, it's a good note to, to, another note to say that the Praetorian Guard getting permanently stationed in Rome was what turned people into emperors to begin with. Rome started out as a republic. Well, it didn't start out that way. It started out with a democratically elected king and then moved to a republic. Right. Marcus Aurelius had a dream that was Rome, Proximo. This is not it. This is not it. And then moved into emperors when the Praetorian Guard got stationed there. And here we are 200, 300 some odd years later. That's an important point because that's a destabilizing mark. Um, after that, a guy, Gordon III, comes in. He's actually the, the, probably the last genuinely stable reign. And then just, I'm not going to read off the names, but I'll give you the years. Right, so Gordian comes in 244. He dies in 253. Another guy co um, comes in, murdered 253. Then another one, 268, 275, 276, 276, 282, 283, 284. Am I not you see what I'm... <laughs> it starts to spiral out of control. I don't want to be emperor of Rome, yeah. is what you're trying to tell me. And then they have that crisis in the 300s where basically what exactly what you just said happens. Nobody worth a damn actually wants to take the job or will take the job. Because they're going to get murdered by the Praetorian Guard. It actually comes in, uh, finally, uh, they're disbanded 
when Constantine the Great from the other side of the Empire uh, waltzes on in and uh, defeats them with his own military, disbands them, murders them, sends a bunch of them to the other, you know, all areas of the Empire. But it really, really spiraled out of control. And you have to think, those people who are in this stage where you get every couple of years, sometimes twice a year, sometimes three times a year, your emperor's being killed. Now, obviously, you have a huge, you're talking about almost 200 years, or at least 140 years after they first showed up. But like back to your, your statement in the beginning, those people who first showed up were, oh my God, yes, thank you, stability, civil war is over, Mark Antony's defeated, you know, I understand the guards here, we don't want the military, oh, they just bent a little rule. Just bent the hero of the rule. people is now instilled. Right. He's saving us from the tyrannical government that we had before, you know, during the triumvirate and before that. Oh, thank God. Oh, yeah, they, so happy. We're just going to garrison troops here once because they're just breaking one little rule. Just for rule. a little while. And once I get things settled, I'll get, I'll form a republic again. I'll, I'll step down as emperor. And, and you guys again, will all, have elections. All the, uh, all the historical data that we have is that he, Augustus wasn't necessarily a bad fucking dude. Like, he really did start doing good things for the people, and yes, he consolidated power behind the scenes without them knowing, but there's no historical evidence to say that he didn't have the best of intentions. Right, but that's the thing, though. You're in year number four, and things are just starting to click for you. Yeah. And you feel like the Empire's just starting to hit their stride. I'm not gonna step away now. I'm doing work. Work. I'm yeah. my game! I'm hitting the yeah. I, got, I got work to do. I got the enemies to the north subjugated. They're paying me gold. I got the enemies yeah. to the east paying me gold. You know, I'm, I'm, I got these guys bribing me for defense. I'm 30 for 32, yeah. 500 yards and two touchdowns. I'm not stepping out of the game now. Two more years. And then I, I swear I'm done. Then which, elections. All right. Four more years, and then it's election. Three hundred years later, <laughs> then uh, no elections ever happen again, and the empire collapses. It's just uh, the the whole thing, that whole line about a Republican, if you can keep it, and cult norms. We're just look. I know, I know, it's a norm that's never really happened before, unless we've actually been at war. But it's just look, guys. We're just tweaking this one time, just this one time. If you could just cut us a break, look, I, I promise you, the guard's going to be gone uh, inauguration day, January 20th. Oh, okay, well, they're here to the 12th. Oh, well, now the guard's staying till May 3rd. What? So May 1st rolls around and they tell me, oh, September 1st. Yeah, and then oh, well, they're saying to at least after the first say of the union, and then they're done. And, and, and just yeah, so we 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 got into the part. Constantine kind of disbands these bitches, right? Well, he has to show up with his own military from the yeah. other side of the empire so, that's not falling apart and murder them all. There's a reason. This is this is a testament to how bad they are uh, culturally from that point forward. And we're fast forwarding however long now, three hundred years, three hundred years. No, even to now, like fast forwarding oh, from yeah. Constantine to now, a thousand years. Constantine, continuously in our culture, the name Constantine is used for heroes, used for cities that are meccas, Constantinople, things like this. Like, there's, he becomes this fucking cultural icon now because he dismantled the Praetorian Guard. That should tell you how fucking bad they were. Right, and there's also a problem we have here. We have like a historical low trust in. Um, the House, the Senate, the presidency, nobody cares about it anymore, or that everyone hates you, everybody. Having the military as one of like the few trusted institutions in your country, military and Supreme Court, it's not a good place to be. Because pe- the military is run and they're managed by people like every other organization in the world. Uh, in the United States, the Senate is full of people, the House is full of people, presidency are people. People have 
shitty biases. People have things, opinions they don't want to, they don't want to step back off of, and they're not mythical, magical beings. And if I was to, to like poke, if I was to poke, like my fellow fellow like right side of the aisle people for the past twenty years, it's like you spend a little too much time lionizing anybody who put on a uniform. Yeah, like, I, and from it's just, personal experience, like I've met plenty of veterans that are fucking dickheads. And it's like, they're still people. So to sit there and be like, well, the military is going to solve them. They're not going to solve the problem. They're not problem solvers. They do. They solve problems that require a military response. response. This doesn't require a military response. It was really easy to stick 5,000 some odd National Guard troops in the Capitol and say, defend us from our own fucking citizens. Um, Again, I'm not sitting here saying what happened about what happened on January 6th. We are avoiding that topic altogether. That, That was just the catalyst that put these troops there. But that came from also an innate distrust of the police. Part of it was a distrust of the Capitol Police because they clearly didn't do a very good job protecting the Capitol. You know, it, there was no magic roll-down gates and they didn't do a very good job. They just didn't do a good job. Yeah, they weren't prepared. They weren't prepared, which is not entirely their fault. And again, we're not covering those events. I'm not going to sit here and justify or unjustify whatever happened. And justify or unjustify the Capitol Police, whatever. There was a reason why it didn't just turn into we're going to import a bunch more police to handle a police issue. We're going to stick the military there. And it wasn't necessarily a situation that should have required a military solution. And there's a reason we've spoke about this earlier. And I've put the quote on here from Battlestar Galactica where Admiral Dama goes, there's a reason you keep the military and the police separate. Keeping the military there and continually extending this to protect themselves from their own fucking people makes the people the enemy of the state. Left wing, right wing, otherwise you can create a Praetorian Guard situation. Yeah, I, I think the... Just like Rome had that sacred territorial rule where, like, you cannot garrison troops here. It is against the law. There's a reason why. There's a reason why, uh, was it Posse Comitatus, if I'm pronouncing that right, where, where the military can't Sounds operate... great. Um, as, a, ...as a law enforcement capacity on U.S. soil. There's a reason why that was that was ginned up by the people who wrote the document. And they're doing that exactly it, now. It wasn't out of... It wasn't just like... Oh, we're just gonna throw this in here for no reason. Yeah. They they lived with that previously when they were just a, another colony, and it's like this is not good because exactly for the reason you said. It's eventually everyone just becomes um, becomes an enemy, and you see that with how the United States for the problem they've had overseas with insurgencies. And They're not easy to handle. And this isn't the only historical example. Yeah, it's it's a historical example that happens semi in the same order that we're seeing right now which is why i latched onto it but you can see with uh hitler's sa and ss they militarized them and they became secret police and started rounding up citizens you can see this with the rebels from the bolshevik revolution and then they turn around and it becomes soviet russia and those same rebels got militarized and became secret police and kvd you know, military veterans from the first and second coups in venezuela chavez takes power turns them into secret police Right now in Myanmar, the Praetorian Guard gets brought in for what seems like peacekeeping and peaceful transition of power reasons. And at the time, to the Roman citizens, much like now, it seems like a very good idea. And from the historical lens, I don't even blame them because it made a lot of political, socioeconomic sense. And next thing you know, 300 years, it's a fucking problem. The secret police are rounding up citizens, raping them in fucking bathhouses and killing government officials. At, well, it, at the end of the day, it costs it cost the entire empire. Yeah, and at the, the end of the day, the entire Western Empire, Empire. Yeah. and it's again, we're just looking at it how easily this can fall down the rabbit, fall down the waterfall, and become a fucking huge problem. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, and I'm not saying before anybody starts fucking calling us out and reporting me places that 
the National Guard troops there are going to suddenly start raping people in the streets. That's not what I'm saying. It took 300 years for it to get so bad that they had to, that Constantine had to bring in the military to eliminate these guys. You know, I'm saying that we're opening a dangerous door, much like me and you say all the time about all sorts of things going on around the country is that you have to be wary of these doors getting opened. And I'm not saying don't open them and peek your head around and take a step through just to see for the, for the sake of progress, which is, you know, the progressive ideal, but you have to be a little conservative in these things and, and look at what could potentially be your second and third order consequences. And I think with this particular topic, it was, it was really interesting to go back and look at something in history that happened in, Virtually the same order. Sure, we didn't have a full-blown civil war. Nobody's heads got cut off. But politically, it was just as bloodlusty, you know, from a, an ideological standpoint. Yeah, and just like we have rules in the Constitution, whoever wrote this, the sacred, the rule of sacred boundary of Rome that military can't be garrisoned there. Had some serious fucking yeah. foresight. They had, they had a reason. They didn't just write that for no reason. There was a... That person got to observe empires from thousand years before them, and they had historical records. And they go, you know what? The military being in places where they shouldn't usually leads to something bad going wrong. And I can't wait for the archaeological uh, the archaeologists to find the stone that's chiseled where they're saying the exact same thing me and you were saying into a twentieth century, twenty first century microphone right now. It's these are not those who don't respect history are doomed to repeat it kind of deal. And this is I'm just looking at. A situation that made me immediately uncomfortable and it wasn't because the rioters happened to be conservative i happen to be a conservative i personally think all those idiot guys were fucking idiots i it's the fact that it had to happen at all means we've taken a step too far in this country on our divisiveness and things like the tyrannical reign of the praetorian guard can easily happen if we react in the wrong way and i personally think it, placing troops in the capital a place that that's that's traditionally not where they're allowed to be, is a fucking problem. Right, because you broke the sacred rule. I don't give a shit if it was Trump. I don't give a shit if it was Pelosi. I don't give a shit if it was Republicans, Democrats, progressives, conservatives. Putting up a giant fence around our government buildings and sticking 5,000 troops there and then extending them twice because well, we're worried about unrest because of whatever ridiculous political thing that's going on. Re-impeachment trials, confirmation of fucking cabinet members, Distribution of stimmy checks. I don't give a shit. I, you can generate whatever reason you want. They pull something out what of your happens ass. in two weeks when they say we're extending it again because we're having a vote on I don't give a shit what. When does it go away? Yeah. When does it go away? And it, it bothers me because it can easily turn into 200 years and I'm easily turned to dust at that point and they're, you know, raping my great great grandchildren on the street because that particular division of military personnel has now become this political power wielding force of violence and i'm not saying that there's people there now i'm saying that's what it can turn into and we have to think that far into the future because we have examples that far in the past yeah there could be there could be something there could be somebody in 2100 who's sitting on their couch their big brother camera staring at them thinking like what were those idiots in 2021 doing when they let them set up shop in the capital and god willing he's got a secret studio in his basement listening to our podcast that somebody preserved for posterity and my voice is heard in 20 the year 2100 or 2200 because i plan to live to be methuselah well like you said I, there were probably plenty of people circle back and kind of put a philosophy on this so I hope there are plenty of people who who probably not very long after i'm, I'm not saying not very long probably like 20 to 25 years after 
who were living in Rome after the Praetorian Guard got set up realized that that day when they saw them come in and get garrisoned was the last coming day coming over the hill with Augustus you know it, that was the last day we had our actual freedom yeah and it's uh so I, I hope this at the very least was thought provoking again I'm not I'm not trying to to raise a rebellion against the Democrats because they extended the National Guard by two fucking weeks I, I'm just saying it should be thought provoking it it should be something that we all sit back for a minute and really think about and how these these things can turn really badly south. If you're really concerned about the National Guard troops being posted there, I um, I recommend you write your senators and your representatives and say, look, I'm not comfortable with the military force being in the Capitol. I think it sends a bad message. Um, by all means, cite the Praetorian Guard and hell, cite us. No better way to get popular than AOC screaming and yelling that we're pieces of shit. Um, straight up. Um, if you're not comfortable with it, I think letters and things are the best way to go with it. Um, uh, I'm not dogging anybody for doing it. I understand the logical reasons, and, and even I, I think the intentions were good for doing it. They, those, some of those senators and representatives were genuinely afraid for their lives. Some of them shouldn't have been genuinely afraid for their lives because they're lying sacks of shit. But the other ones should have been, and I understand that that was a scary situation and this was their knee-jerk reaction, but I don't want it to turn into this kind of situation historically. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really hope you think about it. I hope you learn something by uh, doing some research after this about um, Roman politics and Roman history. Yeah, definitely. Please, please, please do not just take everything we said as gospel. Go read and form your own opinions. We left out 300 years, years worth of, of details um, that may change your opinion and may even make you disagree with us. So I, I'm just saying this was this was something we posed as a, a question based on our limited knowledge. After reading, we saw some parallels. Um, I learned a lot. I also learned a lot about this Ardbeg five-year wee beastie that I really enjoyed. It is a wee beastie, maybe a little bit bigger of a beastie than we think. Um, go out and pick it up without the tariffs. It's very affordable. Uh, drink it straight. Fuck that ice cube. Uh, and I hope to see you all guys. Uh, I want to say next week, but we're pieces of shit. So next time we post. And uh, have a good one.